Hello and welcome to Play to Find Out, a podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. I am Arthur, also known as Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. And my name is Amen, also known as Voidlight, your other co-host. Now, we have a packed show for you today, but before we get into it, I just want to thank everyone on the Discord who's already listened to the show and let you know that if you're subscribed via a direct feed, you can now also subscribe in iTunes or Google Play. So not only do we encourage you to get on those so that our analytics start picking it up, but also leave a review. Help us out. Let us know what we can improve and what we can do differently. And we're really excited to hear your feedback and your thoughts as we start working more deeply on this really wonderful show. And I want to dovetail from that and just say thank you to everyone who's already sent us uh, feedback and responses. I've been looking through all of your messages on Reddit, on Google, on Google, on Google Play, Google, uh, Google, Google Plus. Plus, Google Plus. Yeah. That's right. And uh, on the Discord, of course, and uh, at our very own email address, um, which uh, we'll, we'll actually have some emails this week. I'm incredibly excited. So this is a big week. We, we've had such a good launch and i cannot wait to see what the future of the show is like yes it's really exciting to get feedback and to hear that what we're doing isn't totally crazy so with that in mind <laughs> well uh, it might still be <laughs> well, it might still be i mean inherently playing role-playing games is a little bit wild um so with that in mind let's just start out by talking a little bit about uh, a highlight from a recent game i've got something this week uh, specifically from my most recent Dungeon World game, which was a one-shot with uh, sort of half-and-half half my regular group and new players, players who had had some experience in Dungeons & Dragons but had never played Dungeon World before. Uh, the whole event was actually set up by a friend so that she could introduce one of her friends to a system that she liked better in the hope that they would then switch their game over to it as well. So a little bit of a marketing campaign for Dungeon World. Uh, at the table that day. Um, and that, that, that session was a ton of fun. We had a really good time. It was super cinematic, lots of fun action scenes, some good characters that we got to meet. Um, but there was something that happened in that game that has never happened in one of my games before, and I was really excited about how it went. We had a tavern opening. We began our game with four characters hanging out in a tavern. And it worked. Like, it's practically a cliche that the tavern opening is the the lazy way to start an adventure where everyone just sits around, you know, talking to one another, not doing anything. And, you know, I, I'm sure that that happens in some groups, but I was really excited that with this group, the tavern opening worked. And it worked for two reasons. Reason number one was that it was focused. We had already sort of set up a big premise of the game that we were going to be playing that we were in a town that was ruled by a sorcerer and the sorcerer's tower in the middle of town was a constant source of late night light pollution so this group of adventurers in the bar which really wasn't even much of a group of adventurers they were there mostly uh complaining about the sorcerer's light which led to let's go figure out what's making all that light in the sorcerer's tower in the middle of town which led to the second thing that really worked about it. An ideal moment at which I, as the DM, could call for a smash cut over to the four of them trying to get into the Sorcerer's Tower. 
Okay, so I was, that's actually what I was going to ask. Like, did they literally roleplay, like, walking out of the tavern and going somewhere? You started, like, the tavern was where they met up, like, for the evening, and then you hard-framed to somewhere else? Hard-framed to somewhere else. We basically got cool. enough out of that scene to just say, here's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time, but in a context that let their characters kind of shine a little bit uh, and gave them a little bit more flexibility that wasn't my more traditional start, which is start in the middle of a conflict and get out of it. Or escalate it, whatever it happens to be, which is how I usually begin my Dungeon World one-shots with new groups, especially. Um, this was a nice, more relaxed start that still gave us an opportunity to get into the action very smoothly, very swiftly. I think an opening that's almost as cliche as the tavern opening is the prison opening. Like, oh, you guys yeah. wake up, and you're in a prison, and you don't know how you got here. That's, um, and I have used that myself oh, as yeah, well. Oh, yeah, totally. I love the prison opening. opening. Yeah. Um, I've had the prison opening, I've had the escaped prisoners opening, and I've had the you just arrested the big bad opening. All of those are fun. Um, and I actually think that's a great moment for us to transition into our the, into part of the meat of our show today, where we're going to talk a little bit uh, about some dungeon mastering game running ideas in our GM Academy. <laughs> So, today in our GM Academy, we're going to be talking about calls to adventure, compelling openings to a campaign, to a one-shot, but especially I think today we're going to be talking about starting long adventures, adventures that we intend to go for many sessions. So, Eamon, how do you start your adventures? This is an interesting topic, especially because this is one of the most unique challenge I think facing a lot of people in the role-playing hobby today. Unless you happen to be blessed with a gaming community that is very active in your city and like big hobby stores and stuff, this can be a challenge. Um, finding people uh, in a university setting that are going to be able to actually stick together for you know five plus sessions uh, is a big deal, or you know the length of a whole summer. Um, finding uh, people online that are going to be able to stick together for a long time because, and this will dovetail into our meta talk once we get there. But I think a lot of people find that, uh, people being flaky or scheduling being hard is really difficult to start an adventure. And we can talk about that, but narratively as well, how do you have enough, um, enough narrative meat and hooks to like carry you, carry you far. And, um, I find much more difficulty with the former than the latter. I always have ideas for adventures that would take, you know, 10, 12 sessions to like truly get the meat out of. Um, and the sessions that end up being, you know, end up being three or four sessions if I manage to get that out of it. And so I've sort of resigned myself to, um, encouraging people to make, uh, character arcs that, can be resolved in a few sessions and that we can sort of like steer the story to try to focus on those things, establishing more clear goals at the beginning of like, where do we want to see this end up realistically? Because it, that's more satisfying than having things trail off if there's still a lot of narrative potential there. And also, um, trying to be especially economic with my time during the sessions to make sure that there's not a lot of dead space and to start shifting things away from the table. And I might talk about some techniques uh, about that, but what about you? What about you, Arthur? What are some things that you do to uh, get a big um, 
get a big adventure kickstarted. Yeah, so I do a couple of things at the start of my long campaigns. Uh, thing one is I probably spend too much time letting my players talk about their bonds with one another because I think that those opening conversations about bonds are the ideal moment to start sort of figuring out what a good starting point will be, what this group of people might all be aligned on, even if they're a very different group. Um, you know, why is the th why is the evil thief and the lawful paladin, how are they in the same party together? Well, let's talk about our bonds with one another and figure out exactly what it is about these two that lets them coexist. Um, and then the second thing I do, especially when I'm starting a very long campaign, is something that I picked up from, uh, from the GM of my first ever Dungeon World game, Ryan. Uh, Ryan had us on our very first day go on Roll20 together. You could also do this in person on a piece of paper or whatever it is you're most comfortable with. And we each drew in a section of the map for our, the area where our character came from. Um, and he didn't actually require that our characters came from the place that we drew in, but it was a great way for us to start the campaign uh, was by getting some narrative investment and also creating a space where our character could be the resident expert because we as the player were also the car the person that created the space. Um, and that really worked well. Uh, it, it gave us some sort of initial investment and it helped us start off the adventure on a really positive uh, player-focused foot. So I've definitely picked up that one and carried it, carried it along with me. Um, I have several just unbearably uh, haphazard maps just hanging out in my Roll20 history from various one-shots that I've done. And those are always a good time to look back on. Um, but What you're describing, um, for me, almost in, in my mind, is associated with Dungeon World Vanilla. Because very much in the way that the rules are written, uh, that sort of play is almost the underlying assumption. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very um, perilous wildsy, if I can say that. Where, oh, for sure. Uh, the ma the draw maps, leave blanks is like one of the shining principles. And um, we don't necessarily need to know anything about the world before we start to play. And it's all emergent at the table. Um, I've watched uh, actual plays um, on Twitch and stuff like that of Sage Latora. Uh, and Adam Cobell playing, and a lot of times, like, this is the sort of thing that they're, they're doing, where, like, uh, we come to the table with no prep. We come to the table with um, just the character sheets, and out of the character sheets in that session zero conversation emerges the whole campaign. And then once the jam goes away from that session zero, then they do prep. And this is all described in the Dungeon World book. Mm -hmm. And I've d run Dungeon World like that, and played Dungeon World like that um, a couple times, where, um, and there are strengths to it. The strengths are that the players are fully invested in the world because they watched like the, they, they are the source of all the plot hooks and this world is forming around them. Um, but the majority of times I play, uh, even if I'm playing a long running campaign, I, as a GM will have an idea for like some set piece somewhere, like, or just the setting itself is really interesting. And a lot of times it's just because I'm wanting to get use out of the awesome, awesome material that's floating around the dungeon world. Um, just community. Like I'll, I'll have inverse world in hand or I'll have grim world in hand and be like, guys, here's my pitch, a short elevator pitch. I have just vague ideas for fronts and monsters there. And you guys tell me where you fit into the world and we'll go from there. I might give them a yeah. tailored playbook selection, uh, for one shots. I'll use an even tighter form where I'll grab one of the, uh, the many, uh, dungeon starters instead of adventure starters, dungeon starters, like that are usually single or two page things, uh, to run a small one shot dungeon that details a single location. And there are really good ones around. I mentioned, I think, 
maybe in a previous episode, maybe an unreleased episode, a Mark Tigart dungeon starter. And he is a source of a lot of them. And I could recommend many more, but you can check out many of those in the Dungeon World syllabus. But those things on their own are just pre-made one-shots. Also, if you want to have a long-running campaign and you're in the situation that I hinted at before where maybe getting people together is easy, but keeping up the narrative steam is hard, those things can be just slotted in. Like, you, you're in this world and a lot of it's unexplored. It's emergent. You as a GM can be like, this location exists and have the players just come across it. And then you've got a really fraught uh, location uh, with lots of different hooks in there mm-hmm. that's usually very tight. And those things in their modular nature are just a gold mine, honestly. Totally. So Do you want to talk about the social th- element? Are, well, actually, before we jump to the social element, I think I'd like to to sort of reframe this conversation a little bit. Now that we've talked a bit about how we as GMs can sort of prep our initial steps and make sure that everyone is bought in narratively, I think one thing that we can talk a little bit about um, might be how do we how do we justify the fact that these characters are in this adventurous situation in the first place? That's something that I've definitely struggled with a little bit in a lot of my games, and I think is the real crux of a call to adventure why are these people going on an adventure? Is it because their players want to go on an adventure? Yes, of course. But that, to me, is a shallow justification that can be made a lot more fun with a meaningful start, which I think is one of the things I'd really like to talk about today. Oh, like the why are you guys a party question? The why are you guys a party question is definitely part of it. But also, why does, you know, I've got a party in real life. You know, I have a group of friends. We hang out on weekends. You know, we'll go on the occasional adventure in the form of a road trip. But, you know, the we're friends and we do stuff together justification is, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite carry over to, oh, we're going to go out and hunt Minotaur. Um, so why, how, how do you get your players together and get them out on an, on an adventure in character, I guess, is kind of the, the, thing, the, the thing I'm interested in talking about. That's never um, been much of a problem for me in my games. Um, uh, uh, interestingly enough, I've read a lot of adventures where at the beginning they uh, spend a lot of verbiage trying to give you good hooks because uh, they're afraid that a lack of investment might be a problem. And they're like, why are the players in this location to begin with? And I- I'm always like, I can just stick any item in this location they'll be running for it. I can stick any NPC in this location they need to find they'll be going for it. Um, I can just make this... Uh, location the source of a global conflict and they'll go there like there's so many things in my mind that making the players go to a place isn't a problem and likewise why they're together um most of the time i just ask the players how do you know each other and i get really good answers like really quickly Mm. other than that some that i've fallen back on that i sometimes hard frame and just tell them straight up is you guys are professional company like um there's one that i did once where we were running through the skyblind spire which is, uh, I believe, a Mark uh, Tigert dungeon. Uh, don't quote me on that. But um, mm-hmm. we're running through the Skyblind Spire, and I said, you guys are a company of adventurers that is known for basically cracking the hardest dungeons that are um, puzzly in nature. That like when other adventurers go there and they require something unconventional, you guys are sort of the master key that um, people know uh, to do that. And so independent contractors will sometimes mm. pay you to go to a dungeon just to sometimes even just to spite its creator. Sure. See, consulting, like, Look, it wasn't that hard after all. Consulting yeah, dungeoneers. Um, exactly. And they, so they were all these independent operatives and specialists that didn't necessarily like each other, but they were all um, part of this rotating cast of characters. And I implied that every playbook 
was a character that was in this um, company, even the ones they didn't take. Um, and the ones they take, they got to flesh out like that operative. So like they had all the different playbooks were specialists in that company. Uh, Mm -hmm. others that I've seen are that each of the players is the representative, um, of a different nation. And, uh, this, this goes from like the all, they're all from different cities approach that some people take Mm -hmm. where like, there's a great catastrophe in the lands and you guys have been assembled at a council to deal with it. And that's sort of the, um, the Rivendell Council of Elrond approach, sure. right? Does, does they're that like, approach? They're, they're ambassadors. Do, does that approach have a clinical name, something that we can refer to it? Because if not, I have a pitch for what we should call it from now on. The uh, Council of Elrond approach. The Council of That's Elrond approach is good, but uh, I, I would like to pitch the Bionicle approach because. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, I can. That, see, I understand that reference. Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, as as nerds, we have a responsibility to understand that reference because it is the exact cross section of obscure and creative that we as dungeon masters should revel in. So. What's sad is that's probably dating us both a little bit. Oh my Bionicle's god, you're right. Over. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, is it over? I feel like I still see those products like on, uh, like like the new generations of those occasionally. I actually got a couple for a birthday present a couple years ago. Um, Story wise, it's over, isn't it? Or if it if it is still going, it's rebooted. I'm because sure it's they totally definitely ended the world. Because, yeah. They definitely uh, yeah. They brought it to a close. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, there's there's those different things. Sometimes I um. We roleplay them meeting, although that sucks up a lot of um, time and is I very sparingly use. Mm-hmm. And other times you can suggest a reason that they're all together by your playbook choice or by your GM stipulations. Like sometimes I say you guys are all humans um, or you guys are all wizards or something like that. Although Dungeon World itself uh, pushes for a diverse cast. Uh, the, the typical rule that a lot of people follow with no playbook duplicates also um, supports that. Um, although I have seen parties where they're all a single type or like, like maybe they're a company of rangers or something. Um, what's his name? There was by Ray Otis, uh, the, the writer of Plundergrounds, um, put out a little dungeon world sort of play kit for how to play an adventure where they're all, all the characters are part of the same military company. It was called pack world. And so in that they're all soldiers, right? But they are all like specialists. So there might be like the, the cleric for the unit or the sort of like scout for the unit who's a ranger or the arcanist for the unit who's a wizard. And that's a really cool frame because you're setting up the backdrop of a war. Like within a war, there's this special unit and what are they doing? So cool. So a lot of different ways to sort of sort of get your adventures kickstarted and a lot of ways to inject a little bit of setting flavor and detail into the connections between your players and their characters. So I am uh, now I think maybe we should uh, we should talk a little bit about how to make uh, a long running campaign work. Uh, I think you alluded earlier to the fact that often it's the players that get in the way of a a long running campaign really taking off and existing over a long real world time span. Um, I've definitely, you know, had that issue with games that I've been in in the past where people have real life stuff that gets in the way and it's not just limited to you know tabletop games i've had that with other stuff that i do in life various hobbies that i've picked up that rely on a group all getting together having group members drop out and not be a part of it anymore um so why don't we talk a little bit about some strategies to get those long-running campaigns to work around the players that are you know a part of it absolutely and i think this dovetails into our um next uh next segment actually Mm mm-hmm um, the, one of the ways, um, to make that work 
is to be economic about the time at the table so that uh, those games go quickly. And I've even uh, been experimenting a lot in my own games in the past year with sort of hybrid hybridizing a game where it's portions of the game are online and portions of the game are um, in character uh, in order to both uh, take some pressure off what happens at the table and also give ways for people to participate who are um, far away or absent for a session or et cetera, et cetera. And the main way I use that uh, is with Discord, although I've seen people do this with um, Roll20 and other things like that. And me getting into Discord a lot was um, because of this necessity. So I wanted a place where we could um, talk in character while not all together so that um, it wasn't just me as the GM like meeting up with people and only them getting able to see that. Even if I talked with just a single character, everyone else could come later and read it if they wanted to. Um, I've had any time that their players are going to be uh, choosing new moves or leveling up or buying something that never happens at the table for me. That's always um, over Discord, uh, you know, between classes you can message or between, you know, when you're on your lunch break or things like that. And sometimes even um, side scenes. Uh, I've, I'm a backer of the Invisible Sun game and have been following that a lot uh, from Monty Cook Studios. And one of the things that game was pushing was the ability to play in multiple modes, as they call it. Uh, there's the... I forget the names of all the modes, but there's the basic, like, they have some fancy name to just playing at the table, which is the default. So, like, the main story content, the adventures, the action, the combat, that's happening whenever you can get all together. And then they have this thing called development mode, which is side scenes where you can have one or two players and just follow them as they try to pawn an item or follow them as they try to like follow up with a contact or just something that happens like between sessions, but you still get to role play it. And that's a solution for if you can only have a couple people there, or if you want to do something remotely. And sometimes I do that as a play by post, even in the middle of a in-person game. Yeah. Um, so like between sessions, I'll do that. Those little play by post bits. Yeah. So it sounds like it's time for us to formally transition into our meta talk for today. Let's do it. So, Arthur, do you want to tell everyone what is play-by-post for those who haven't heard of it? So, play-by-post is an approach to play, uh, a long-running campaign or even a short-form campaign in which rather than getting together simultaneously with one another and speaking out a conversation all as a group, um, instead, interaction at the table is done via uh, long-form text, uh, sort of longer written-out descriptions, which can happen without everyone being present and even without everyone necessarily agreeing that this is the time to do it. Um, instead, it can operate at the pace of whoever is participating uh, so that you know the ongoing conversation is not required to take place during you know, a three-hour period of time on a Sunday, for instance. Yeah, it's asynchronous, which is a strength of it. Um, and Discord, Discord is very well suited to that. Um, I, anyone who is a member of the Discord, um, the Dungeon World server, will see just things set up for that, where there are dedicated game rooms. A lot of times people advertise for a game, and then you can go and join a server that they've set up with an out-of-character channel, an in-character channel, maybe even some voice channels, but sometimes not. Typically, there's a dice bot added to the server, mm -hmm. where you can type in certain syntax, like slash R and then D6, 
or an exclamation point or something, and you can roll dice right there in the client so people can see your rolls. We'll do some math for you. And that creates the ability to just role play over text, which is really cool. Additionally, Discord has uh, some light markup, which uh, cannot be um, understated. I love the ability to show something in italics or in bold uh, just by adding some asterisks before and after, um, especially to distinguish between me as the GM giving scene dressing and the characters saying things. Um, it really makes it visually read nicely and not just be like reading through a massive group chat or something. Um, have you had good experience with play by post? Uh, not in, not since I started playing in person games. In fact, my group actually has some rules about play by post behavior that I'm going to definitely want to bring up. Uh, but first, I'd like to hear you pitch me on the, uh, you know, give me your sales pitch for, for this hybrid style that you have, uh, that, that you have invoked earlier. So I had, uh, my flagship game that I kind of like tried to uh, implement it with when I had the idea was I was playing with some people. And I noticed that we could get together every week, but at minimum, there would probably be one person gone because they would have an event or they would have something like that going on. And they were um, wanting to be able to interact with the game even between sessions because they were just they were just learning about role playing. And we had like just started playing together the previous year and they were just hungry for more play. And I just couldn't be available that often. So I wanted a place for them to all get together and like talk about the game um, and stuff like that, even away from the table. And I wanted to make use of our time at the table, make the sessions tighter, make it more flexible. And so I instituted a couple things. One was a discord server where we could get together and chat and where I could do sign seeds with people remotely. I started uh, making content for them that I could do in my own time, sort of single player, because if you think of it, the GM is playing a different game than everyone else. Like what GM prep is like a single player game. Like you are still role playing, but like by yourself and you're doing this sort of world building. And a lot of times other people don't get to participate in that. Like I'm in a 5e game right now where every week, every single day, the GM is doing stuff and like he's tinkering with the world and stuff. And he's like preparing set pieces and like drawing on his big boards. But we don't get to see any of that until the little slot that we role play. And that's only like every like three weeks or something. It's crazy. So with this, um, if I'm doing stuff on my own, like preparing things, a lot of times I can hand it over to them before the session even begins and they can do some single player stuff. I've even gone so far as to make twines, which are um, they're basically like text-based choose your own adventure games that you can set up through, um, through a website. Like it's, it's a way to do sort of digital, digital choose your own adventure, like fiction. And if I want to give a player the ability to like get some XP, I'll write a little twine about them, like exploring something on their own or having a dream sequence or a vision or them in like training. And, um, they'll uh, tell me what they, what ending they got on the twine. And then they'll get like a relevant bonus in the game and they can play that single player. Um, and that can be like between sessions and just as like part of character development. Uh, additionally, if someone isn't there, they can sometimes, uh, send through text, uh, things that they um, are doing apart from the party and like make little roles like during a session, although I use that less often. And finally, if we can't get together in person, um, but we all are free at that time, like maybe it's just spring break and we're all at home, but we still want to play, we can play over voice where otherwise we would all be in person. So like this hybrid place, like it, dra it draws everything into one place. It makes the game a little bit more flexible. Um, and it also allows things to be slotted in, in and out. Aside from the technical parts, I also narratively try to make each mission end 
the way a TV show might, where um, things sort of like wrap up a little bit. So if a character needs to drop out or if we need to slot someone in, um, I'm trying to, I'm always shooting as a GM for that being possible at the end of sessions. Mm, like they're, they're either somewhere safe or um, a time skip happens or something at the end. So each session is is um, like a mini arc, and I try to stick stick the landing at the end of the session, where if a character needs to go away, you know, that that can happen easily. Cool. So I absolutely love uh, a lot of the things that you've brought to the table here. Uh, in particular, I love the idea of creating a single-player twine content so that you can avoid, not avoid, avoid is the wrong word here, but so that you can empower your players to have these solo scenes, the spotlighted scenes that wouldn't necessarily fit in your very economical, you know, core table. Um, that's really clever, and I think it's a great way to make sure that everyone feels included in that sort of thing. Um, but I actually we want to share see. the dark side of, of of having a play-by-post or even a hybridized play-by-post slash world-building conversation that's ongoing outside of your, you know, sit down, talk to one another play. Um, Please do, because I know there are dark sides and yeah, I have experience. So. Uh, my, so my group uh, up until very recently was uh, deeply engaged by, you know, hey, let's all sit around our Discord and like, you know, spitball some stuff. And we'll, we'll, you know, we'll take a take a smoke break at work and, you know, write down some ideas to one another and talk to one another about it. Or, you know, we'll, we'll you know, we'll stay up late deep into the wee hours of the morning, you know, writing out these NPCs that exist, definitely exist somewhere in the world. Um, and what happened pretty quickly with that was we would have these whole conversations and just come up with stuff that we determined was, you know, just a core part of the world. We get to the table and one player would reference that and another player would have no idea what they were talking about because they hadn't been following that whole conversation. They had skipped it entirely or they hadn't really been processing it as they went. Uh, they had marked the whole thing as red without even looking at it, whatever it happened to be. Um, it ended up making the player, it almost ended up making uh, a click within a group, uh, yeah. the click of people that were willing to participate in the out of session stuff. And the people that couldn't or didn't or didn't want to, whatever it was. Um, and it was so easy for that to get out of hand that I've actually, that alone was enough for us to institute a no talk, no setting talk outside of play. Um, we actually deliberately keep that at the table. And I don't even really think about setting talk outside of play, um, outside of what is strictly necessary for my prep. Because I want to have as many blanks as possible to draw maps into when we get there, uh, out loud as a group. Um, yeah, and the, you've, you're touching on the core strength and the core weakness because it's sort of a sliding scale. Like the strength of doing things on play by post or things um, hybridized is that the players who want to be more invested can. That there are different outlets. There's buttons to push. There's strings to pull on. There's like places to go. Um, but the players who um, are already being met in their level of investment and like don't have more time than like whatever you've set up to spend on the game can feel left behind. And so it's kind of, you have to tailor it to your group. Um, for us, like we, my groups just like can never seem to meet enough. Like we, we're, we're always like looking for a time or like trying to find a way. And me as just a single individual, um, I, 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 at this point in my life, feel a little underfed in role playing, mm -hmm. like trying to look for more things. So if you're in like a stable situation where you have people that can meet, uh, meet in person regularly, 
you are a lucky, lucky person. That is just true. whoever you are out there, listener. Yeah, it's ironic. When we were just getting started with my current group, we said, hey, Sunday at 6, let's all get together and play a game. And then at the end of that game, we're like, hey, let's play again next week, Sunday at 6. And that went on for about five weeks with only one session in the middle where we had a mixed group and we had to split things out a little bit. Um, nice. And then the second we get together and think, all right, well, this was a fun like mini campaign, but now it's over. Let's do a real campaign and really commit to it. Uh, the ability for everyone to get together on a Sunday evening or at any specific time on any day plummeted to like a 2% uh, success rate for the next several weeks. Um, it, 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 became, it went from like perfect attendance to uh, we didn't have perfect attendance once in the, in the blink of an eye, in the click of a finger. Um, yeah, life happens. Yeah, life does happen. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, right now, I'm actually the lame one where I'm, I'm the one that's sorry, lame is the wrong way for me to put that. Uh, I'm the one busy. that isn't just busy, yeah, yeah. It, it, busy and it, unable slash otherwise occupied um, where I would like to be playing every Sunday the way we've been trying to. But the la this Sunday and last Sunday, I just haven't been able to get it together uh, due to family stuff. The, just fam yeah. having family in town, it turns out, is the thing that happens in life. Um, <laughs> You're you, you should consider yourself lucky for that as well. Yeah, Although, I, I definitely am not complaining about yeah. that. Not even remotely yeah. complaining about that. But uh, it uh, it all it all comes together sometimes. But quick story on my part. Oh yeah. Uh, this past summer, uh, a coworker at work like invited me to join uh, his his personal game that he um, was playing with a group uh, through Roll Twenty that they had all met each other online. They'd been playing together for a couple of years, and they had just had a player. Um, drop out because he was too busy to keep up with the game and so he asked if I wanted to join and um, I was working out of state so I knew that like after the summer was over I would be only remote in this game um, but it was a roll 20 game so that was fine and uh, but they were playing on Friday nights and during the summer I had nothing to do on Friday nights because I was just working this job in a city that I didn't normally live in and didn't know a lot of people there um, and then once school started again, Friday nights were the most packed night. Everything is scheduled on a Friday night. All my friends want to hang out on Friday night. And so my ability to like have time for this game, um, was really, really split. And so eventually like a few weeks after coming back to school, I was trying to, um, let them know in the game that like, I, I couldn't keep up with that as much and wanted to, and I asked them if they were okay for me just like dropping in every now and then for an adventure. And they said that they were not because the culture of this game group was like we all like are super serious about the game and we um like are a long running group like i said like the four or five of them had been together for several years at that point mm -hmm. and so like we worked out a narrative way for me to exit and i like set up a session with the gm of like you know part of my character's backstory was that he was being hunted and it's like how about these people catch up with him and he either dies or absconds and the party doesn't see him again um and he was like, all right, next session we'll do that. And then I couldn't make that session. No. So, yeah. But so he just, so it was, yeah, oh, it was geez. kind of dramatic. And, but yeah, so sometimes life just happens. Uh, and yeah. I, I have a question and you don't have to answer this question, but are you, do you still talk to any of them or did that completely sever any tie that you might have maintained? It was cordial and that they were pretty understanding, understanding and everything. But like, I have not played with them, yeah. played with them since. But like, they didn't like kick me off the server or anything like that. Like, I still drop in and like uh, what they're doing because they were a great group. It was for fifth edition mm -hmm. though, so yeah. Um, 
the sessions were a little bit longer. It was hard to schedule time for them. It was pretty involved. I really couldn't be doing anything else at the same time, even though it was a remote game. It was all in Roll20 with grid maps and stuff. But th those players and that GM put in a lot of work. Like, I could tell that he prepped, like, quite a bit um, in order to make um, a 5th edition campaign go very fast. So it was very interesting. I had a good time, though. Yeah. No, that it is the best, too, when people are really willing to put in that effort. Um, it really makes everything a lot more just smooth in general. And being the odd one out in a situation where people are willing to put in the effort really is rough. Um, yeah. See, I, the I, online scene is interesting. Yeah. Like, like try, have you ever tried to start a game on World 20? Uh, I, have, I have both joined a game that was getting started with uh, people that have never met each other and started a game with people that have never met each other. But I've never done it yeah. by just putting out an LFG in Roll20 directly. Um, which I think is maybe listeners. Let us know about that too. Yeah, it's send weird. in your email. Like, have you have you had a successful group form on? L I feel like I'm asking people if like they've met someone and then married them be over online dating. Like that's the level of yeah. commitment and unlikelihood <laughs> that I, I perceive in getting a lasting group out of just a, a roll twenty post. Um, it's it's totally just like casting out a net because you don't know if the people have English as their first language even mm -hmm. you know if they've ever played role playing games before like if they have ever played a game in person like maybe they're just like a purveyor of the online scene so yeah there, there's a lot more that yeah. we can talk about in this episode so send us email on, hit us but... up on the discord um, find us I guess like out on the street and tell us how it went I, I'm not going to give you a firm rule on how to tell us how your group formed online but you know, let us know. Get in touch with us somehow and let us know, and maybe we'll be able to feature some of these stories on the air. Uh, origin stories. Origin yeah. stories. Oh, man. Yeah, send us your origin stories, your group origin stories, and we will read out ones that we like. Um, and we will still like the ones that we don't read out, too, for that matter. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, but, yeah, my one of my groups um, was the most... It was a weird, like, arc to that group because we started all as one thing, and then... One player just stopped coming, and we never heard from him again. And then another player just stopped coming, and we never heard from him again. Uh, and then another player joined, and then an, an, another player who was friends with one of the other players joined. And so we ended up with a group that, uh, in which I was one of two players that, are, that was in it from the start of the adventure. Um, and by the time we... And and then that group ended up that that game ended up ending because the GM stopped coming. Um, so with any warning, just like uh, it, we, he stopped scheduling sessions is a stronger way for me to put that. Uh, it wasn't okay. like he scheduled a session and then didn't show up, but the scheduling stopped happening. And uh, okay. I actually finally, yeah. you know, I, I I heard from him after a while, and it seems like things he's got a new game going. But uh, so things are good, but. Uh, Let's put a bookmark in um, in here for another episode. Yeah, I think we're definitely going to want to come back to campaigns. this um, uh, for sure. But there is a, there's a, 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 another conversation that we should eventually have because we just talked a lot about starting adventures mm -hmm. and like ways to do that. But ending them is, uh, I think, almost a harder skill. Yeah. Um, so we could talk about how to have satisfying endings and um, how to like be looking forward to the fact that your campaign will eventually end even from the beginning. Um, at some point in the future. All right, I'm going to let our audience in on a quick pitch meeting that we're going to have right now. So here's the uh, the team play to find out production minute. Um, could we do a three episode arc? This episode is beginning campaigns. The next episode is uh, continuing campaigns, and the third episode is ending campaigns. For GM Academy. For GM Academy, play, uh, you know, meta talk, whatever, whatever section we think is appropriate. Um, 
three I sign off. three themes. All right, get excited for our next two episodes, uh, or maybe they won't be the next two episodes. Maybe it'll be three weeks from now, but uh, sometime in the future, we're going to have a continuing and existing <laughs> campaign, and uh, sometime after that, ending a campaign. So get the excited. The epic soon to be trilogy. Dun, dun, dun. All right, but uh, before we get to those new episodes, uh, I think it is time for us to get our mind's eyes going and start to imagine things. Is this what I think it is? Eamon, I'd like you to picture this. Picture this. Eamon, this past weekend, I saw a movie, and I have not been able to stop picturing things from that movie. I think I could go for the rest of this podcast, and every single picture of this that I bring to the table could be from this movie. That's how crazy the ideas that this movie brings to the table are. Arthur, uh, tell me more. So, I saw a two-part movie from the South Indian Tollywood region. Um, it's a movie called Bahubali. And it is an action movie about a legendary hero slash lost prince and his father. And it is chock full to the brim with vivid imagery, incredibly fun characterization and clever approaches to narrative design and nonlinear storytelling. And really just across the board, the, the whole appearance and experience of this movie is spectacular it's also currently available on netflix for those of you at least in america who subscribe or steal someone else's subscription uh and we'll probably we will at minimum include the name of the film in our show notes but i'd like to bring something specific to the table uh from this movie a specific thing to picture and possibly include in your games and that's this idea of of just insanely specific rituals there is a sequence in this movie where a, uh, a particular character, if I recall correctly, the queen, um, an adopted mother of the hero, has to carry a lit torch, uh, or rather a lit brazier, I think, the uh, sort of a pot of fiery coals on her head uh, for an extended walk. I believe that the distance in the translation was 26 miles, but I could be wrong. Um, and... Uh, the the way that they portrayed this is this woman uh, dressed in her finest ceremonial gown with a big pot of burning coal right on her head, um, surrounded by a platoon of soldiers keeping her safe as she embarked on this on this very specific ritual of bringing this coal. And one of the rules for the ritual, one of the the contrivances is the wrong word, but it's close enough. Uh, of what she was doing was that if she hesitated for a second, the whole thing was moot. Um, there was sort of a ceremonial uh, fearlessness that had to be a component of it. And that ritual is just so vivid to me because I can abso absolutely see how you could bring that into a Dungeon World game like it was nothing. It would be easy. Um, you have opportunities that pop up for all sorts of moves, both from a player perspective and from a GM perspective. Um, so many difficult choices and hard bargains that you can offer. Uh, and I've got a couple of suggestions for that. But Eamon, do you have anything that right off the top of your head this immediately sets off for you? Um, it made me actually think of a Reddit post that I saw on the, um, on the Dungeon World subreddit a while ago. Um, and 
I don't want to, I don't want to like sidetrack too much, but, uh, it was, uh, I, I like highlighting community content and it was a user called Wander, Wanderer Down who was saying that for his rituals, he would, um, either himself or make the person doing them make a sentence that was what the ritual basically was. For example, I summon a demon to fight my enemies and then he would break it up into syllables or just chunk it like close enough to syllables. Like I sum mon a de mon to the guide my enemies, like something like that. Then he would regroup them arbitrarily, um, where the spaces weren't like I sum mane demon to fight Menemies, like, or something like that. And then he would mix up the order or reverse the letters. So it would be something like, And so he, it sounds like some crazy, like, magical language just from him sort of chunking up the words and putting them around. And I thought it was amazing. And he, he, like, recorded audio of himself doing it and added, like, a reverb. And I was just like, this is. This is amazing. Oh, that's really so fun. That's what I was thinking yeah. of when you were saying that. Yeah, sure. It's a great way to give your rituals when your player is is undertaking them in particular, that extra little bit of energy, that little bit of spice and flavor that we GMs always try to bring to the table. Um, but aside from what they say, like you're talking about the actual actions being ritualistic mm-hmm. and, and interesting and, and, and stuff like that. What are some other things they did in the film? Okay, yeah. Let me come up with a couple of examples. Um, uh, and I'm going to try to do this without... Uh, spoiling to um, mm, you know what this is officially a spoiler warning for the two-part film bahubali the beginning and bahubali the conclusion um so uh skip ahead to well you know skip ahead probably about five minutes in order to make sure to avoid any uh, spoilers if you particularly mind uh, I promise it's still worth watching this movie, even if you know every single plot beat. I actually had to refer to a Wikipedia article even to keep up with the thing. Um, wow. Yeah, it was great. Um, so one, uh, so th- let's see, there was the ritual that I brought up initially, which was carrying this, uh, this pot of coals, uh, across a long distance in an unwavering fashion. Um, uh, and they actually brought back that exact ritual later in the movie in a different context that was extremely cool. Um, uh, let's see. Other rituals. See now, now that now this is the only one I prepared, so now I'm t- coming up totally blank. But I can uh, definitely, uh, I uh, so instead of instead of telling you more, and uh, this ends, I think the spoiler warning for Bahubali one and two. Um, rather than telling you more about the, the other rituals in the movie, we'll come back to it. And instead, let me pitch you a way that you can use a ritual of this construction in your game, and some of the things that you can bring from it when you do. Okay. There is an NPC, probably a holy figure. Uh, they start this adventure dressed in their absolute finest robes. Um, they've got something on their head which is dangerous but manageable, or something that they're carrying which is dangerous but manageable. It doesn't have to be on their head. Um, and they have some sort of defense which is ultimately going to be meaningless compared with the threat in the way. Uh, something that you as a GM can use to demonstrate the danger of something that the players encounter along the way. Um and then where your players come in is that they are invested in the success of this ritual somehow. Either they're part of the guard or they, you know, if, if the ritual fails, then, it, then it's the end of the world. Whatever it happens to be. Um, and then along the way, you've got almost, it's not exactly an escort mission, but it's got an escort mission-esque construction that you can use. Um, and the sorts of difficulties that you encounter along the way can very much be rooted in these two parts. 
a dangerous but manageable substance that needs to be transported and the unwavering way in which that transportation must happen. Um, Ooh, like don't let a single drop spill from this bowl yeah. as it crosses miles, or, like something. Or like that. even just at, at no point can both of your can both of the carrier's feet be on the ground. They have to be running the entire way. Um, and the imposition of that rule then gives you a ton of narrative room for your five, your seven to nines on a defy danger, a hard bargain, for instance. Well, yes. You're able to block the tiger's jaw as it closes around your uh, your armor instead of around your bare skin. But um, the um, wow, I immediately lost it. Um, but in doing so, the uh, in doing so, you have to stop in place, and the tiger is now blocking the procession's continuing uh, continuance. What do you do? Um, or an ugly choice. Um, Yes, you can wrestle the elephant to the ground, um, but if but if you uh, or, or you can, wow, sorry, it's been a long day and I'm totally blanking on the way that I would actually do this in play. Sorry, I'm going to cut this from the actual episode. I suspect. Let me leave a little note for me to do that. Um, but yeah, you get you get an ugly choice. Um, yes, the elephant. You can stop the elephant from rampaging through the procession, or you can, uh, or you can let the elephant go through, t- killing three of the guards, but leaving the procession un, uh, leaving the procession unblocked. Um, and I don't know about you, but I always find it a little bit difficult to come up with hard choices and uh, d- and bargains along the way. So um, it can be really, really useful prep to have a list of those ready, especially if I have a general sense of what an adventure might look like. There's a lot. A lot of these are fitting the format of uh, personal personal health and safety, or public health and safety, mm-hmm. maybe against each other, or personal or public health and safety against the success of the mission. Where like the ritual itself must go mm-hmm. through. You know, there's this like impetus, and that's something that's really great and kind of baked into the ritual move. And which is why people out there, even if you don't have a wizard in your group, uh, make there be. Um, some sort of uh, magic in the world that is ritualistic that comes across the player's plates because it's always so fun and so flavorful and creates those set pieces that are the things people remember in their games long, long after. Absolutely. So with that in mind, I think uh, let us know if you use a ritual, particularly a ritual inspired by the uh, Tollywood film Bahubali. Um, and that, uh, that should do it for our picture of this. So, uh, Eamon. I understand that for the first time in Play to Find Out History, second time in Play to Find Out History, now that I say that out loud, because we've, we haven't gotten an email before, but we have gotten questions from our, from our fans, um, we have an email. That's right, we do. And this is coming from uh, Jonathan Johnson, who has the, the illustrious distinction of being the first ever person to send us a Dungeon World-related content to our email address, which, if you want to get in on that sweet action, is play to find out at protonmail.com, um, spelled just like you'd think. Um, and he says, Hi, I'm going to DM my first custom campaign soon, and I've been rattling off an idea of a human-only campaign. 
the caveat being that the players can pick other races from the handbook as long as they can justify it in terms of uh, augments or some sort of background thing that their character has. Do you have any thoughts, any race calculators or classes that might help to make this campaign easier to balance? Mm. Um, this is something that I have done plenty of times. I, I, I prefer um, parties where the players are mostly the same race and where if there's going to be someone of a different race that it's either only one or two people in the party um, and i think that we've moved away from that in recent years in early DD, i don't know if everyone knows this uh being a halfling or a dwarf or an elf was a class like if you were going to be that like that was so consuming that that was all you were like you weren't like an elf mage it was that you were an elf and that elves were a certain way and being an elf was kind of being like a pseudo caster and stuff like that and i think people moved away from that because they thought it was kind of i guess racist but that like all, all elves like are the same because they're like a class mm -hmm. but if you think about it like the fact that it's so different from the human um experience of like being something else that it's a lot to balance if your party is so diverse in recent times we see even reinforced by like the art and stuff in books like the um like the D, &D like fifth edition books every person in the party is a different race and a different class you know and a different gender like everyone in the party is like very unique and that's just a certain style of play but this humans only style can sometimes have a more uh, not gritty, but a, a more sort of grounded campaign mm -hmm. where like things are interestingly mundane at times and where like the, the human differences between the characters, like their viewpoints and stuff are what really give them texture and flavor. And, um, how do we implement this in Dungeon World though? So Dungeon World, um, vanilla has, uh, homages to, um, D and D, uh, but not, uh, typically to D and like D D's most recent additions, um, where, the classes that make most sense with certain races, um, th those races will be listed on that playbook. Like, for example, you'll notice that in Vanilla Dungeon World, the Paladin has only human listed as their, um, as their race because human paladins are just a trope. And, and that's why those are like that. But I've seen Dungeon World playbooks, um, out there in the community that are identical to the Vanilla playbooks. And the only thing that they have changed is that every single, uh, a race suggestion on the playbooks has just been renamed. Um, so for example, um, for the ranger, instead of elf, it might say like warden of the wilds or something. And for the human option on there, it might say, um, like walker in the cities. I I'm not looking at one right now, so I can't tell you exactly mm -hmm. what they are, but they basically just reframe race as background, like because of your, like the specific way you got into this, like that's how, um, they do that. Like in the, in the alchemist playbook, um, which I'm realizing is, is not one of the vanilla ones, mm -hmm. but, um, are the, the, the first edition I've seen of the alchemist playbook had, had races and the, um, I saw one that was modified to this format where they were just renamed the race, um, based on different specializations. So it, one might be, um, alchemist, you know, or, or one might be tinkerer, you know? And so those are, um, you could be whatever race you want, you know, and still take this move. So it basically just like allows the characters to be, maybe we're all the same race or maybe every single one of us is a different race, but race doesn't factor mechanically in, mm -hmm. which is basically what this person is asking. Like, how do you abstract race mechanically? Yeah. Um, one of the, it's not that hard. Yeah. I definitely no. think that if you want to avoid, uh, you know, non-human races in your setting, then uh, re renaming the ones from the book is a perfectly good way to do that. I think that there is, not a single racial move that I can think of off the top of my head anyway, that a human just wouldn't make sense being able to do it. 
Um, at least in the context of a game where wizards are a reasonable thing to have in your group. Um, yeah, because they, 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 the good thing about Dungeon World is they're not tied to the race um, as strongly as they are tied to the class. Mm-hmm. For example, like for the, the emulator, like one of the moves uh, is like if you're a salamander, you regain all of your health um, from, oh no, you're immune to fire if you're the mm-hmm. salamander. Like that's something you could already imagine an emulator just having. Yeah, or so, just a person like you might... having. Like it, there are, yeah. I think that there are already people in the world who can, for instance, walk across hot coals and, you know, it, it obviously does something to them. Like it's fire and skin, but who are able to resist the natural scalding and burning and searing that might happen. Um, so sure, you, you can you can totally justify that not in terms of well it's a it's a salamander but in terms of it's a person who comes from an area where walking across fire is a thing you have to do on a day to day basis and so they've got very thickly calloused feet. Uh, yeah, yeah, or or like it's part of the origin of their powers like to begin with mm-hmm. like just tie it into tie it into that and I, we will link to those um, playbooks that I'm talking about um, because they um, there are a lot of. Uh, different versions of just the vanilla playbooks that are changed by small degrees. And that's sort of like the first thing, like the next step is be all of the, um, all of the alignments are renamed. Like instead of lawful chaotic, they, they, they give them a name like honor or something mm-hmm. like that to make them a little more multifaceted. The next step beyond that is I've seen them where all of the, um, the bonds are rewritten as like keys or flags or something like that. So like, yeah, until you get like really into the ones where the moves are changed. Cool. Like some people don't like the fact that the ranger, always has a pet mm-hmm. so they change the pet to be like an advanced move and they make the basic moves more about traps and tracking you know or things like yeah. that so can we go back to the question for a second because i think there was one other element to it about augmentation that we didn't really cover yeah well he says um if you want to still take the same race moves from the handbooks uh and and how are you going to justify it for the character like why they have that uh he says you could justify it as um he, he says augs that mm-hmm. your character has um which which i'm taking to mean that they're they're augmented in some in some way um either by training or or whatever mm-hmm. but like if you want that to be you know take it all the way to the cyberpunk extreme of like artificial augmentation or like they within their class are specifically blessed mm-hmm. or something like that as a cleric or th- maybe they have an item on their person which gives them their special race move um those are all possible yeah Cool. So it sounds like we've got a pretty solid way for uh, for us to avoid, you know, going out of our way to use elves, dwarves, the traditional Tolkien-esque fantasy trope races in our games. Um, which I, I also appreciate the difficulty of making a city seem, you know, it, it's weird in a fantasy setting to have a diverse city. Because, for instance, the dwarf city is the dwarf city. And it's weird to talk about the elf population in the dwarf city, which you know, lives in the in the little wooded area that they've grown into the mountainside. Um, so having a setting where you can avoid that and where the the fantasy trope races aren't the thing that causes people to delineate one another, it I think can lend itself well to you know to good storytelling and good flavor. So kudos to you for trying to find a way around some stuff and you know looking at it from a you know at a wide angle to try to make sure that it works for your game and still keeps it balanced. Uh, thank you for writing in. Yeah, listeners, send us more content along these lines uh, as well. Like, how has race factored into your games or not factored into your games? And what is your uh, fantasy background to understand these things? Like, I- I've played a lot of Shadowrun, and so race is sort of uh, very intermixed with culture mm-hmm. in that game. 
Or like you might be a certain race, but not subscribe to that race's culture because you just sort of became that race and didn't choose to and didn't grow up. Like you might be an elf, but not raised by elves, Th things like that. So different settings really influence how we think about these right. things. I'm actually I'm um, going the so other yeah. direction with it right now where we, where I'm running a game in which uh, the, the system doesn't have m mixed races or multiple fantasy races. And we are going hardcore the other direction by sort of uh, homebrewing just the most diverse set of fantasy races you can imagine on top of everything. Um, we've got everything from basically anything that would fit into Chronicles of Narnia fits into our setting at this point. Um, and could oh, have like a talking piece. animals. I'm and, talking, yeah, and everything talking and, animals, yeah. uh, lizard people, minotaurs, centaurs. Uh, th there have been a couple of fawns so far. Um, all the all the stuff, every single thing you could possibly want um, in a. Uh, in an elaborate urban fantasy setting. Uh, yeah. And this is, we're, we're playing Blades in the Dark, which by default has, you know, people, humans, uh, humans from different places and with different uh, cultural and physical characteristics, but, you know, humans. So that's been kind of fun going the other direction as well. So maybe we should, I think we, we've talked a little bit in some of our backlog episodes about some of this stuff, and maybe we'll come back to that as we go. But for now, thank you for writing in, and we look forward to more emails from all of you out there next week. Once again, Eamon, what is that email address? That is play to find out at protonmail.com. And thank you again, Jonathan Johnson. Yeah, thank you so much for writing in. But with that in mind, I think it's time for us to call an end to an ep another episode of play to find out a dungeon world podcast from the dungeon world discord once again i've been arthur your co-host and oh I, I do have an addendum oh, at the end oh. um there was an email that um that i was sent that reminded me that i should we should probably do a tiny bit of mop up from last episode because mm. some people had some lingering questions Ooh, lingering questions from last um, week. wonderful additionally to the all the new things that we've started that we should call out um and uh for example we now have a twitter accounts mm. um and um the handle for that is play to find out or at play to find out but the two is a numeral two mm -hmm. so p-l-a-y number two f-i-n-d-o-u-t uh, on twitter and that will have um you can find the episodes there as they come out um and, and as as well as uh interaction between us and the community and hopefully little exciting adventure mm -hmm. starters and, and things like that from us um but someone um was asking me since I mentioned a non-Dungeon World game in the in our first episode, I was talking about the uh, the Nightmare Below. They were asking where they could actually find that game, um, or where they could find more from that game, uh, which made me think of focusing this uh, podcast uh, on on Dungeon World content, but also trying to uh, attribute sources. And I found out that that game has actually changed names, um, maybe because of its similarity to uh, the Nightmares underneath as we talked about last time but it's now called far below and we'll link in the show notes here to the uh the g g plus community for that game um, because it is still alive and i there actually are more recent versions of it so super and actually on the subject of mopping up our mistakes from last week uh, i would like to thank uh from the bottom of my heart my friend john gilmore for writing the music that you've heard in this show John Gilmore is a working bassist currently operating out of Connecticut, but soon operating out of the Boston area. Um, and at some point, I will find out his contact information so that I can include that in the show notes in case you want 
some music for a project of your own or just to support a great musician working hard on making great music. Yeah, I had such a great time listening to all the test tracks you sent God, me. He is such a talent, and I'm so lucky to have him, uh, to count him as a friend. But with that in mind, it's time for us to once again part as friends. This is, again, the Dungeon World podcast, Play to Find Out from the Dungeon World Discord. I'm your co-host, Arthur. You can call me Art Projects on the forum. And I'm your co-host, Eamon. You can call me Voidlight on the forum. Thanks so much for joining us and for playing. And you found out. It's been such fun having you at the table today.